Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Community Exchange podcast brought to you by OpenWeb. On this podcast, we track the development and growth of the community economy by talking to the leaders in media, tech, trust, and beyond who are bringing it to life. Joining me for this episode today is Noam Bardeen. Noam is the founder and CEO of Post, a platform built for real people, real news, and civil conversations. Post has been called a competitor to Twitter, or should I say X, and it's doing some really interesting things for publishers and its users alike. Before launching Post, Noam was the CEO of Waze starting in 2009, where he built a massive and truly global community of drivers. So needless to say, this guy knows community. Uh, in our discussion, we cover a ton of topics, including Noam's vision for Post, his experience in building and growing communities, the 2024 election, and of course, AI. Uh, you may notice that this episode was recorded live. Um, so if you want to catch live podcast recordings of the Community Exchange, just follow OpenWeb on LinkedIn at OpenWebHQ. Uh, all right, now let's get started. We're also mentioned, uh, joined here by Adam Rosenkranz. He's on our partner success team at OpenWeb. Um, Adam has a background in ad tech, works really closely with the team at Post and a whole bunch of our other partners. Um, so thanks for being here today, Adam, making the time. My pleasure. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Thanks for joining. Okay, cool. So with that, let's go on to the discussion. We'll go through a couple of questions um, and I'll, I'll try to play moderator here. Um, so first one, uh, let's start off. We'll just learn a little bit more about Post. Uh, Noam, you're building this new social network, um, as you describe it, profitable for publishers, civil for users. So we take it from the top. Um, in your words, what is Post? What's your vision for launching it? And what makes it different from other players in the space? So I guess the, the core insight that we have is that the future newspaper is actually the feed, however you want to call it. Now, the younger you get, the more you consume your content off social media feeds, a whole variety of different, of different social media platforms. And uh, this has been you know, across the world, across the area, that's kind of the direction. Challenge is that social media platforms were not built to work or to play nice with publishers or you know, others would put it much more aggressively than I did. Um, but basically, there's constant tension between the platforms and the, um, and the publishers. And we wanted to build a, a platform that's dedicated to news. We want to kind of reboot the relationship between publishers and, and the social platform. And there's three things we, wanna, we think that are broken with the current platforms that we're trying to address. The first is the user experience. You know, you, when you're on you know, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, and you click on a, on a news link, you get bumped to another page, different user experience, bombarded with ads and email capture forms and paywalls and all these different things, very bad user experience and is driving people to basically not click on things. And so our goal is to have everything in the feed. We ingest content directly from publishers. We show it in the feed in a consistent UI and a really smooth user experience. Second thing is monetization for publishers, right? Today, Facebook can make a fortune while the publishers make nothing off the same thing. And so for us, we've built an economy into the platform that's built on micropayments, and it allows publishers to charge uh, several cents for reading an article. And the goal really is to provide diversity of views to the user, but at the same time, compensation for the publishers. To put it in perspective, a one-cent read is a $10 CPM equivalent. Right. So or 10 cent reads, $100 CPM equivalent. Right. So there there when you begin thinking away from just ads and subscription, you begin thinking of other business models, a lot of things open up. 
The third thing is really the toxicity of the networks. The networks today are toxic by design. You know, they're ad-supported platforms. They want to keep you engaged on the platform. The best way to do that is to show you some hateful content and we get mad and we stay and we get involved. And so I don't believe we can change that unless we change the business model. We're taking a slice of the micropayments. And that, that kind of puts everyone's incentive in the same place. We need to make sure that the user gets the right content that they appreciate enough that they're willing to pay for it. The publisher needs to obviously have that content just in the platform and, and will make a, a revenue off it. And we will only make money if everyone else on the platform makes money. That's great. Now, there's a lot that we'll cover, uh, kind of digging into some of the things you said. Um, so I'm going to move on to the second, uh, second question. Um, and no, you know, community has been a major factor in a lot of the projects you work on. Like I mentioned, um, Waze community was huge, uh, famously a major differentiator contributor to its success and post, as you just explained, huge portion of it is community and importantly, keeping that community safe, rooted in fact, and making it work for the publishers and the users. Um, so general question first, um, taking kind of maybe a step back, how would you define community? So I think community is an extremely hard thing to define. You know, I go back to the Supreme Court a, a decision that, you know, pornography is hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Same kind of thing with the community. It's very hard to define a metric that says this is a healthy community. But when you have a healthy community, you immediately see it. You see the interaction between people. You see the help people give to each other. You see the, the amount of time people spend on the platform and the engagement on the platform, et cetera. And, and all these kinds of soft metrics, because when you try to put a hard metric on it, it's very, very hard to find a metric that actually show the quality of the community. Now, I believe very strongly in communities. I've seen things that ways that, again, I, I would never have believed before seeing it, how far you can go with the community. And I think when it comes to content moderation, you have to be community driven. There is no way that a moderator in a call center in India will understand the complexities of the Muslims and the, and the Hindus in Myanmar and their hatred of each other. Like, it's, it could never happen. How do you moderate something like that if you're, you know, an Indian sitting in a call center or in the Philippines or wherever it is? And so you need to have local people get involved. You need to have, obviously, tools to deal with, a, 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 with bad actors, et cetera. But we believe strongly that the community should do this. And when you think about the most powerful community-driven platforms, if you think about Waze, if you think about Wikipedia, if you think about Reddit, et cetera, the secret sauce has always been these moderators that are community-driven and provide the right, the right sense and the right moderation for that community. Sorry, I'm trying to unmute there. Um, no, that's great. Yeah, and I think actually another example, um, although I wonder if you'd agree, would be maybe Reddit. Yeah, as I mentioned, Reddit. Reddit's oh, a great example. Um, yeah, and again, Reddit, the beauty of, of the way Reddit works is these, these community moderators, right, who take responsibility for their area. And it also creates different types of discourse. You know, uh, a community of people of color will use the N-word in a way that me as a white guy would never use, right? That's legitimate for them, right? It's not legitimate for me. So different communities are different. I might be an expert on white nationalism in the U.S. doesn't mean I know anything about immigration hatred in France, you know, and so everything, you know, is local and is contextual. Yeah. And I think, uh, so you mentioned ways in there, what do you think some of the main differences are that you're experiencing so far, like kind of growing post and the community at post versus, um, the experience of doing it in ways, obviously it's totally different kind of context user experience. 
So it, it's totally, totally different, but it's also very, very similar. It's similar because community platforms it, it require, on the one hand, a large audience. Until you have the large audience, nobody wants to join the platform, right? So you've got the chicken and egg problem that most community uh, platforms have. Um, and, and, and that's very, very similar. I think what we're also seeing is the engagement levels. People want to participate. They want to be involved. They're asking to help, right? And we see that, for example, in the, the flagging of, of, of rule-breaking content. Right? You can post rule-breaking content, and in seconds, someone's going to find you, and they're going to flag you, and it's going to go to our moderators to take down the content. There's a lot of engagement in that. And so, you know, the same kind of early adopters really engaged in the platform. And now the challenge, of course, is breaking the chicken and egg. And at 100 million users, everything works out. It's quite, it's quite a lot of users. Um, and actually, though, um, it, it kind of makes me think, uh, publishers, of course, uh, a lot of publishers we work with especially, um, are prioritizing community. Uh, it's, you know, a hedge against maybe changes to search, a hedge against changes to the deprecation of third-party cookies. Um, so clearly, you know, there's a, there's a reason to focus on community, a business reason. Um, uh, what do you think, from your perspective, the, the role of community moving forward is in the world of media and publishing? Well, I think when, when you look at media in general, nothing's really changed in the last 50 years. Yes, we've gone to the internet, we've gone digital. Right, uh, but basically it's the same idea. It used to be a piece of paper, then it was an HTML page. Now it's an app. I go there, an editor decides what to write about, and that content is there. Yeah, we use some al some algorithmic uh, features to help prioritize it for me. But overall, it's the same concept. And the idea behind it is that I will create this personal relationship with that publisher, and subscribe to that publisher. I pay a monthly fee and read all my content from that publisher. And this is how news evolved, you know, over the last uh, 50, 100 years, basically due to the constraints of paper. But today, like, to me, that makes sense. I grew up on a piece of paper, right, 52, so it makes sense. And, you know, the average age of a subscriber in America is 51. So it's like it's my generation that, that is subscribing. When I look at my daughters who are in college, they have no idea what I'm talking about. It's like, you want to tell me you go to a site so someone else can tell you what to read? It's just completely alien to them. They are on social media platforms. They follow people they trust. The people they trust share content with them, and that's why they want to read it. The problem is that then they hit the paywall, asking to subscribe. I want to read this article because someone I trust shared it. I, I don't even know who you are, publisher. I'm not going to subscribe. So this all or nothing thing is a problem. And in general, I, that's one of the many things that need to change, I, I believe. It, it, one is that publishers need to understand that the users are going to consume their, their news the way they want to. With or without you, Mr. or Mrs. Publisher. So you need to be able to put your content in multiple places. You need to have, make sure your content is monetized in multiple ways. Subscription works for 1% to 2% of your audience, you know, who are highly engaged and partisan, et cetera. It doesn't work for the 98% that's out there, right? Only 20% of Americans subscribe at all to anything, right? So like, when you think about it, you have to think about the 80% of Americans who, are, who will never subscribe, or let's say the 75% or 70% of Americans are not going to subscribe. How do we provide them with credible news? Because on social media networks, which is, again, the, the, the consumption platform of choice, in what the New York Times writes and what I write after you know, really researching something on TikTok heavily, and I, it looks the same. These are two posts out there, right? And so it's so much easier to read lies that are, are in a nice UI, simple to use and free, than try to deal with all these crazy UIs and, and subscriptions and all that stuff on publishers. And this is really destroying us as a society. 
right? The fact that we're kind of losing our connection to credible news and we're accepting whatever anyone says as legitimate. And uh, Adam, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to just jump in. Um, community, you know, it really comes in all shapes and sizes, like you're saying. We at Open Web, we partner with publishers with various types of these communities, all with varying different needs. Um, some publishers really think of it as like an editorial-based commenting system or message boards or um, forums or, you know, with gamification or community awards. There's a lot of ways to approach it, and everyone's driving into a community as a core piece of their audience development strategy overall. Uh, we see community really as that key to publishers to own uh, and create those richer relationships with their readers, especially as first-party data becomes increasingly important. And when done right, it's a huge piece of the puzzle for media companies. Uh, you mentioned you want to be the new news source and mentioned the way that the media landscape is changing from paper to app on social media. Of course, as we know, many of the platforms switch the model of how audiences find and engage that content. Uh, there's algorithms that are programmed to feed you what you want to see or what you specifically angers you um, and what you're interested in personally. Whereas with a creator economy, it's a little bit different. They create an audience and then that audience gets pulled together by them. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think of this in relation to post news? How is this driving the way that your algorithm serves or do you have an algorithm? Uh, I think that's what we're wondering. So I always believe you have to start from the consumer. And this is a problem with many publishers. They start with their own problems and they start with their problems. And from there, they project outward. And you think about what, the, what I believe the consumer wants is the consumer wants a wide variety of news sources. It wants help with recommendation of what to read from people they trust or follow or things like that. They want to get involved. They want to get engaged. They want to comment. They want to like. They want to share. They want to do all these kinds of things, which is why social became kind of the biggest platform for news distribution. Uh, part of the challenges that I think publishers need to ask themselves is, are you going to be the destination site? So if we think the New York Times, right, the New York Times is the destination site in the, in the classic sense, right? They're, they're killing it. It's working well for them. And so for them to go into any new area where there is any kind of margin is very, very cheap, right? If suddenly, you know, there's, there's some margin in, in Boston, for them to hire 100 uh, reporters in Boston is nothing because the platform scales across everything. And that's how technology scales, right? And so you as a publisher who's not the New York Times, you need to ask yourself, are you going to be the New York Times? Are you going to have 500 million actives or whatever they have a month? And if not, you should not be following their strategy. And you should be building your own strategy for your own needs. And this is why just saying community, it's like it's a big word. But what does that mean? Why will the consumer want to be in this community? Assuming every publisher has their own community, which one should the consumer uh, be part of? And, and to me, the idea that most publishers think that they will be the destination, I think is wrong. And I think it creates a few problems. One, most of the news on most of the sites is exactly the same, right? 80% of the content is the same because everyone's tries to bring everything to everyone. And I think what we're missing is specialists. You know, you need, newspapers need to be, or publishers need to be known for something where they have the best reporting, the only place that has that reporting, just to repurpose more Reuters content like everyone else does about news. There are other platforms. Who are you? Well, what is your value to the consumer? And why should the consumer be part of your community specifically? And I think that's a question that most publishers kind of don't want to answer to themselves, really. And it's, it's a very, very tough question to answer. And we've seen on our side at OpenWeb, you know, tons of success working with what we call enthusiast media. 
Um, you know, we actually, we just had IGN on a, uh, on a live event a couple weeks back. Um, they've had a ton of success, you know, but as you're, as you're saying, they're, they're, maybe they're almost the New York Times of gaming, right? Um, so I do, I do, I think that's a good point. Um, but actually on the, on the topic of publishers, um, you mentioned the micropayments. Um, kind of wondering, what has the response been among publishers to micropayments and also among users? So I've been playing around with this area of micropayments for three years, roughly, since I left Google. And publishers, you know, I've had lots of meetings with publishers at all different levels. And the interesting thing is no one disagrees with the problem. Everyone agrees that what's going on in the market now doesn't make sense, right? A consumer is not going to subscribe to every publication. That's like one and a half percent of, of GDP or something. Right? So that's not going to happen. And so at the same time, every publisher thinks they're going to be the brand that you subscribe to. But if everyone thinks that way, it can't be true, right? And no one is converting large numbers of their, of their traffic, right? If we talk about 2% is a, is a generous conversion ratio. And so there, there's fundamental problems the way the market is set up today. How do you flip that into the future? There are different theories. The problem with micropayments is this fear of cannibalization, right? The fear as well. And this is something very interesting that I heard from many publishers. They're like, well, we don't do micropayments because we have a large cohort of users who never use our content. They pay every month, they're subscribers, but they never consume. Suddenly they could move to micropayments. And if you, if you think about that from the essence, if your business is about selling things to people who they, something they don't need and you're afraid that they'll find out that they don't need it, it's not a very healthy business. And so I believe we have to change that. Now, micropayments have been discussed since the beginning of the internet. The idea is to have very, very small payments, fractions of a cent, one cent, five cents, things like that. It, it uses payments to do it, and it, it kind of creates a business model that's between ads and subscription. You know, ads is lowest common denominator. You need hundreds of millions of users, fractional cents, you know, for, for, for CPMs. And then you've got subscription, which is a very small niche, very high quality content, you know, and very targeted. But most content's in the middle, right? Most content does not have hundreds of millions of users and does not produce enough unique content to be a subscription. And there's no business model for that. So why have, up to now, micropayments have not have been tried multiple times and always failed. And I believe that now is, a different, is the time they're going to succeed a, because um, of paywalls. You know, when there weren't any paywalls, you couldn't have micropayments, right? If everything was free, why would you suddenly pay, right? So paywalls is an important part of that. A consumer's willingness to pay in general and for content, right? That's been broken completely. Ten years ago, if you would have told me I'd be paying for video or music, I wouldn't have believed it. Today, you know, we all have Netflix and, 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 and Spotify, et cetera. Um, and, and the payment methods. So removing all that friction and that consumer uh, concept is there. We were dramatically surprised by how well it was working. We assume, when we talk about conversion, when you join posts, we give you 50 points, which is equivalent to 50 cents uh, to start using. And when you hit zero, then we ask you to pull out your credit card and buy more points, similar to gaming networks. We, we model this over game, uh, around gaming networks. And what we see is that users who spend their points, when they run out of points, between 50 to 60% of them actually pull out their credit card and buy more points. 50 to 60%. We assumed it'd be up 1.5%. That was the model we were looking at. And consumers get it. Like we hear that from our users all the time. They get it. They're happy. They actually begin telling publishers, why aren't you on the platform? I want to read this, but, you know, I, and, and so I think on the consumer side, I'm actually, I, I assume the consumer side would be the harder side that actually has gone really well. On the publisher side, everybody said no until we launched. We launched in November. Suddenly we have, we have several hundred publishers who, who publish randomly on the platform. 
And then we have about 30 who've signed agreements with us and we ingest their content automatically. And that includes The New Yorker, Wired, Vanity Fair, USA Today, uh, The Independent, The Fortune, and a whole slew that's coming now. And so we basically ingest our content directly into the platform and make it available on the platform with a micropayment. We allow them to... we allow them to set the price. In long term, we want to have algorithmic pricing, but for now, they set the price. We, we have recommendations, and consumers are doing it. And when you look at the at the kind of effective CPMs, we convert everything to CPMs to make the discussion easier. You know, they're getting between twenty-five to three hundred dollars CPMs on their content on our platform. And the craziest thing is their free content is getting a one point three dollars CPM of tips. People will just tip the publishers because they like them. And so we're seeing tremendous things happening there. Obviously, it's early, early adopters. We'll have to scale. Lots of questions out there. So far, everything we've seen has been extremely positive. And uh, actually, you know, I was kind of wondering about this too, how you incentivize users to continue to engage, register. I think you partially answered it um, with that tactic of the, you know, the free points up front. Um, But how else do you on the platform kind of incentivize users to register, to keep coming back uh, and to keep engaging? So obviously retention is always a big thing and it's a combination of things. One is really the, the, there's the social media side of things. People that like to share things, to get involved in the conversation and be part of the community. And then there's people that are just consumers, right? And that's 75% of Twitter users have never tweeted, right? And for them, we are a source of news without the ads and the paywalls and all of that. And so the way we broke the chicken and egg is by partnering with publishers, getting their content onto the platform, and then giving users a rich content experience even before it, we have large enough numbers of users to actually you know, it, it have the, the network effects kick in. Yeah, and I mean, this, the question of loyalty and retention um, is obviously very relevant to publishers, a lot of publishers we work with. Um, and on that, Adam, is there anything uh, you want to add? Yeah, we, we at OpenWeb, we talk a lot about buckets of users. So there's the people that feel comfortable engaging or commenting, and they tend to be the most valuable because they stay the longest. Uh, there's people that might feel more comfortable going ahead and reacting to a survey or just generally reacting to an article or giving a tip. Uh, and so, you know, while all publishers should do everything that they can to get to that end conversion, which is either a sign up or, you know, reloading your, your tokens, uh, you got to drive each bucket of user to where they feel most comfortable. Community is one way to get there. Um, so I was I was wondering if you can expand more on how your own your owned and operated site on Post News is using community to drive more, or if you're seeing uh, any data that you have um, showing that that engagement is driving more micropayments to those publishers through the community. So it really depends on the content, and this is what we're seeing very clearly. Um, you know, obviously the brand of the publisher matters, but much more is the content and the social signals. So content that gets a lot of engagement starts trending on the platform, obviously gets more engagement right? because of that. But more than that, these are kind of validations for people that other people have read this article and other people have spent. And, and that social validation is super, super important, right? Everybody wants to be part of the, the in crowd and whatever everyone else is doing. We haven't launched, launched yet our algorithmic recommendation. That's, we're very close, but not there yet. And so uh, as soon as we begin launching that, we'll be able to begin uh, personalizing the, the news feed per user based on obviously a million uh, parameters in there and really get deeper into there. 
Long term, what we're building is something much closer to TikTok, where we are actually analyzing the content itself, you know, using something similar to ChatGPT to basically understand what is the article about, what are the topics, what are the entities, what's the sentiment, all these different things, and use that to match the content to the user, even if the user has no one has ever engaged with the content, right? So we don't want to wait for people to engage. We want to know, oh, you know, this content is about race cars. This person is interested in race cars. Let's connect them. Let's not wait to see if someone like this user actually clicked on in all the whole collaborative filtering thing. So that's kind of our direction. You know, you come into TikTok, you you start scrolling, you begin watching things, and your feed keeps changing based on what you're doing. That's the model we want to get to at Post. The intersection of algorithmic recommendations and then uh, you mentioned before algorithmic pricing for the suggested micropayment. Uh, that's interesting. I'll I'll be watching for when you guys launch this. Um, also curious to hear how that affects your partnership with the actual publishers. Does it go both ways? Do you knowledge share what your algorithm is, yeah. is spitting out? Right. I mean, so let's start with this. I'm sure there are many publishers listening right now. You should all be on post, period. Why should you be on post? Because set up a feed once, experiment with it. There's no ongoing cost to you. But what we're seeing is publishers on our platform get so much more engagement than anywhere else. If we have a publisher, for example, that has 2 million followers on Twitter and has 20,000 followers on post, and in real numbers, not in percentages, in real numbers gets more engagement on post than on Twitter because we're a platform built for publishers and we're optimized for it versus Twitter, which looks at as news and publishers as something negative and kind of discounts them through the algorithm. And so uh, on post, we want, we want to have people that come for news in the social context of Oh, sorry. I thought you had something there, Adam. Um, no, that's great. Um, so, okay, we've been talking about publishers. Let's talk about content moderation and trust for, for a second. Um, and we mentioned earlier, for uh, anyone listening live who might have joined, all the user-generated content on post is um, run through OpenWeb, as far, uh, sorry, as far as commenting goes. Um, so if you comment, you're using the conversation tool on OpenWeb. Um, so we at OpenWeb, we know obviously very well uh, that moderation is different for every community that, that we work with. Um, so part of post promise is civility for users. Um, so first question I have related to this, how important is that promise of civility for users to the platform's growth? Do you think? So I, I think it's critical. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that TikTok is the most highly moderated platform in the world, right? Because of the Chinese government, uh, and it's also the best performing platform in the world. I think the mass, the, the average person is not a culture warrior. They're not coming to fight with people. They want to come and learn and, and, and you know, argue and discuss, but they're not here to be called a fascist or a communist. And for us, that's very important. It means two things, though. We don't think we're a platform for everyone. We think we're a platform for the 80%, 85% of people that are what I call regular people that actually have real jobs and families, et cetera, and things to do, and not just you know, their whole life is around uh, owning someone on, on Twitter. And so for those people, and that's the majority, you know, 75% of Twitter users have never tweeted, right? And, and so we're trying to build for those uh, people, people that want to consume off social and be engaged, but, but not necessarily get into these battles. And that's why moderation is so important yeah, on this. We've already seen every kind of moderation issue you can imagine from foreign uh, uh, nationals, uh, nation states, 
to violence to sexuality to doxing to you know everything it's there the the level the depth of of human hatred is is really mind boggling to see how quickly that happens when it comes to moderation the first uh, thing is really having the motivation to do it there is no perfect moderation system and you'll never get everything right and and you'll be hated no matter what you do but the question is are you serious about moderating your platform or not and you know facebook for example is not it's made that very clear, right? Facebook could deal with all of the toxicity on its platform. Facebook knows you're going to buy a car before you know you're going to buy a car, right? Like they could deal with it, but it would hurt their earnings. And so they'd rather, you know, focus on their earnings than focus on our society in that sense. And I think there has to be a balance. Yes, capitalists, companies need to be profitable, et cetera, but not at the expense of our civil society. And what did, uh, advice would you have um, kind of a combination of like the civility for users and the community stuff that we talked about. Um, what, what kind of advice would you have for media companies specifically that want to build a community and want to keep it uh, as safe and healthy as possible? Well, the first question I would ask is why do you want to build a community? And frankly, you can't take a community and stick it on something that exists. Oh, let's just add a community feature. It has to be the DNA of the company, right? You need, if you're a publisher, you need your journalists responding to people in the, in the comment section, the actual journalists. That's why they're there, right? That's the amazing thing. You need the journalists to be giving the backgrounds of their story, right? And, and getting involved. If you're just slapping this onto your website and hoping that things will grow, then it's not, how do you even measure that, right? And so I think to me, one of the biggest misses, I think, in, in, in the publishing space really is the uh, behind the scenes of the articles. You know, when, when an uh, editor gives you a thousand words, you might have 2,000 words to say, but you could only say a thousand words. Well, well, the other thousand words are very interesting. And if you had a way to share that with the, with the users, that would increase their interest in reading the article as well, right? How did you actually get the data? What did you run into? What's the story behind it? And those are the kind of things that really build that special relationship. People want to feel close to the journalists, they want to feel they have a personal relationship with them. And, and so I think the journalists, really engaging the journalists on the platforms is one of the biggest uh, challenges. There's a bigger question, of course, who owns the, the handle and what do they leave? And there are a million questions. I'm not saying it's easy, okay? But I'm saying if you really are serious about community, as a publisher, I think that's your, your secret weapon you have. You have the person who wrote the article, who can respond to people asking questions on the article. That in itself is, is, is gold. But it's hard to do. It costs money. You need to incentivize. It's difficult. Yeah. And one, one more note on that is, you know, moderation, we really see it as a win-win for both the publisher as well as the, the community itself. You know, you just see as an as, as a item, it's key to community. Uh, it doesn't exist without it. So moderation in itself keeps that UGC a capital P premium the same way that your site is. Uh, as a premium publisher, it allows the 85% of the regular people to feel comfortable to come and engage and keep coming back and feel like they're part of something bigger. And also, obviously, for the publisher, they can maintain that premium look and feel, uh, maintain a, a very premium CPM for their, their ads as well. Post News does an amazing job of this. So wondering, uh, how do you see the, the future of UGC uh, as part of the, the community in terms of moderation? So I think what we're seeing with news is that there is today it's much wider in terms of categories than ever before. It used to be you had sports, politics, you know, international, whatever. You had like eight categories of news. Today it's infinite. 
right? There's news about the latest discovery in physics, and there's news about what's happening downstairs in New York here. And, and news has become extremely wide. It's also become extremely deep in the sense of who creates news. So obviously you've got journalists, and I'm not in any way trying to say that a journalist in an editorial public publication is the same as some you know random person writing on, on Facebook. It's not the same at all. But you do have newsletter writers, and you have unbundled journalists, and you have experts now that are writing, and academics, and all different types of sources of news. And for us at Post, we want to have everything. We want to have everything and allow the user in their feed to consume everything together. And so when you run into a subject, you should be able to see multiple opinions on that subject. You know, here's what three different publishers wrote about it. And here's what an expert wrote about it. And here's what a, a journalist wrote about it on their newsletter, right? These are all different opinions on the same thing. We don't believe there's, there's such a thing as absolute truth. There are, but we do believe that if you can read multiple opinions, you can kind of dissect, dissect what, what you believe in and what you don't. One, that's another problem with subscription is that you get locked into one platform. You read that platform's content. And, you know, when, when clickbait, when advertising was the model, right, newsrooms were really focused on clicks per article, right? And that drove clickbaits and listicles and all the, everything that we know there. Now that we've moved to subscription, it's kind of become, okay, what do our subscribers read? Because we're writing for 2% of the audience who actually subscribe, right? And so they tend to be the more partisan of your audience and the more, you know, hardcore. And so we see this drift to become more and more partisan, more and more extreme to whatever side and whatever ideology you're in because you're writing to those users. And those 98% of users who want to read your content but hit the paywall, you know, no one's writing for them. And they are the market. And yeah, yeah. something you said before, <clears throat> um, Adam can definitely attest to this. Um, we work really closely with a lot of our publishers to get them to work with their journalists, work with their staff to interact with their audience. It, it's a, it's a moderating factor. We see when, when that happens also that engagement on those articles it, it skyrockets. We see time on site pages per visit, everything kind of rises. Um, so I just wanted to so mention just, that. just on that point, the, the, the way we're treating it on post, and we're going to start a test with a major publisher on this in a few months is that we want the journalist to basically repost the article with their own commentary around it. And the journalists can get tipped on the platform directly, right? And people love tipping people versus brands, right? And so it, we think that can provide the right incentives for the journalists to actually spend the time getting involved there, sharing it, building up their own audience at the same time, but also driving people to read the article. So the, the journalists can get tipped and the article can get paid. And we were mentioning, you were mentioning uh, a second ago, like the... Um kind of nichification that the that the business model of subscriptions is is kind of causing across the industry um and maybe it's creating these sort of echo chambers that we saw in web 2.0 social media um so very relevant to that topic um we are in an election season like it or not here in the united states it has begun um so i wanted to ask you uh, kind of a general question about this obviously super relevant to the work that you're doing at post um how do you think of the role of social media vis-a-vis -vis traditional media will differ in this election cycle uh, versus maybe past few election cycles when social media was a force? I think one of the biggest problems is that social media companies have more or less given up on moderation. And especially Twitter, right? And uh, they've given up on moderation because the regulators let them give up on moderation. Right? We're we are in a world that's the most 
complicated and, and problematic probably than ever. And we have such weak government to deal with it. You know, our government is talking about regulating AI. They haven't managed to regulate social media with clear damage that we all see every day. So I think what's going to happen around the, around the, um, the election cycle is all the bad things we've seen are going to accelerate. And obviously we've got the kind of the new AI, <clears throat> AI models helping accelerate that. We've got it's just the lack of moderation out there, the combativeness of the politicians and their willingness to, to go as low as possible. And this general feeling of, of, of being, being able to say anything you want to, to anyone, things you would never say face to face, right? If you take like a woke kid from New York and a redneck from Alabama and you put them in the same room, they're going to get along fine. Put a computer screen between them and they're going to hate each other, right? And so I think we're going to see everything we've seen the last cycle just, you know, accelerated and more of. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, to me, it's all about our government. Our government does regulate and does not legislate. And we need legislation uh, around social media. We can't let this just continue as it is. But, uh, you know, we need a lot of things. We need world peace. We need to end global warming, right? We need a lot of things. Sounds like a major theme of that might be the diversity of your community. So I want to hear you double click into how you're incentivizing diversity or how you're making that uh, a key part of your, um, your framework as you guys come out of beta a few months ago. So... You know, diversity is very hard to create. And our goal is to actually protect diverse communities. So they do have a way of finding each other through hashtags and different, and different mechanisms. It, but I think the, the biggest problem with diversity, you know, the, the experience a woman of color will have on Twitter is very different than the experience I will have on Twitter. I'm an older white man, you know, whatever from, from like, I will not see, uh, you know, 90% of the toxicity that she will. And, and to me, that's the problem. It's not about how do I go out and find her and bring her to my platform. It's if she comes to my platform, how do I make sure that she is treated as an equal citizen and is not attacked by people out there? You know, it, the platforms love to talk about the, how complicated moderation is as a reason not to moderate. Yes, it's very complicated. There's huge areas where, frankly, no one has any idea what to do about them, right? Misinformation, things like that. That doesn't mean that we can't deal with racism and we can't deal with sexism and homophobia and, and things that are black and white, right? We know what they are and they are relatively easy to deal with. So my philosophy is, you know, start with the worst, which is in many ways the easiest to deal with. Say, protect the people more than anything. If you're on the platform, you need to feel protected there. And yeah, the areas that get complicated, you'll try different things. Some will work, some won't work. You know, it's going to problem. But don't use that as an excuse not to do anything. And, you know, I think when a lot of people talk about this, and this is um, kind of rolling into the last question that I have, and also, um, <clears throat> uh, but very related, um, it's about AI. So I think a lot of people look at that problem specifically and think AI can fix this, um, right? It, it, we, we've... We're doing some testing with generative AI. Um, I know uh, there are some platforms that are using generative AI to sort of gently correct or nudge um, people in, in the right direction. So I kind of just wonder what you think um, the, the effects of AI will be on social media uh, in respect to like the toxicity and, and all these challenges that we're talking about. I think AI will accelerate every trend we see, good trends and bad trends. The worst actors have a great tool to do a lot of damage. And the good actors have a great tool to fight this damage, right? Um, so there's a tremendous amount of acceleration that's going to happen. And I think just the scale 
that it can do is, is going to be problematic. But I don't think it's, it, we should look at it as something new. It's a tool that's going to accelerate things that we see. You know, there, there's the, the myth of, of, of uh, um, AI being sentient and uh, Skynet, you know, killing all of us and all that. And I don't really believe in, in, in that kind of view of the world. I'm not afraid of logical software. I'm afraid of humans. You know, that what humans can do to each other, there is no software or AI that could ever dream up the things that we do to each other. And so uh, I think the problem is humans. The, the biggest problem is that we need strong governments now to actually regulate and legislate and create the right incentives and responsibilities, et cetera, for the companies. And what we have is the weakest globally. It's not just an American thing, right? Globally, we right now have the weakest governments who cannot legislate uh, and our political systems are basically frozen. Um, and to me, that's the biggest problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, um, yeah go ahead. Sorry. It sounds like we, we share a similar uh, vision from the open web perspective in terms of how AI can help us uh, really fight the good fight in terms of moderating and making sure that a lot of these issues are cleaned up across the internet. Uh, government definitely has a massive role to play. Um, and I think, uh, or we think maybe they can do a lot more. Um, but that said, I, I think- They can do something. No more. They're doing nothing. They can do something. Well, um, well, we're getting to that dream, right? Yeah. All right. Well, we're at time. Um, so I, that'll be it for today. So um, thanks again, Noam, uh, for taking the time. And Adam, of course, you too. I we really appreciate it. And um, it was a great conversation. Really enjoyed talking. All right. You've been listening to the Community Exchange Podcast brought to you by OpenWeb. Today, we had Noam Bardeen, founder and CEO of Poston. Noam, thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. And we'll see you at the next episode.